This is Tech Talks, the podcast where we bring you insight from leaders across the technology sector, powered by Nash Squared. My name's David Savage, I'm your host for the show, and this week's episode is a little bit different. Last Wednesday on the 15th of June, we were in central London recording a live episode, if you will, in front of a live audience, at least with four panellists, to talk about the future of sustainable change in technology. The show today is brought to you in association with Sphinx on Site, one of our associate brands who kindly helped put together the panel for this conversation. It's about a 40 minute chat, uh, lots of interesting views here around how we can actually initiate change through, uh, through the technology sector and improve the future of our planet, which obviously is so important to all of us. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. And we will be doing more of these. So stay tuned. If you want to come along, have a look on our socials and we'll make sure that details are there for, for any future shows. Thank you for showing up today on what is undoubtedly the hottest day of the year so far. And that might be where people have decided to go. I mean, Dan, you yourself mentioned that you might have popped to the pub if it had been for, for not being on the panel. Uh, thank you to Sphinx on site for inviting us to their office for this recording of the podcast, the first time that we've done this since before the pandemic. Uh, my name's David Savage. I host Tech Talks, which has been running for seven years, gets about 25,000 streams a month. Um, we were on about episode 481. And this is about the fifth version where we've actually recorded any content in front of people. So that's, that's nice. Um, but yeah, if you're not familiar with Springs on Site, uh, they are our brand to help charge growth across the, the growth and scale-up market. So do check them out. Um, our colleagues are here, so stay, have a drink afterwards. We have a very nice roof terrace. So if you have avoided the pub, then that's certainly a good reason to be here. Um, anyway, I'll introduce our panel. Um, some interesting speakers to go through this, this particular topic today. Dan, turns out we know each other. You, you arrived and said, you look familiar. And I said, yeah, you look familiar. And you came up to me 15 minutes later and went, oh, we were on a stag do three months ago. <laughs> we were, yeah, yeah. It took me a moment. I'm glad I got to the bottom of it. Uh, I'm sitting here racking my brains throughout otherwise. Shows how many brain cells were probably killed on the stag do. <laughs> Shows how little we drank on the stag do. Yeah, okay, that's maybe true. Uh, apart from that, though, you're co-founder of Ion Ventures. Ion Ventures are? Uh, we're an investor and developer of uh, clean generation in UK and Southeast Asia. So we build solar, battery storage, uh, lots of funky clean stuff to, to help transition to a, a lower carbon economy and a lower carbon world. Definitely proving that we didn't talk about that two or three months ago. <laughs> um, Dave, you've travelled down from Edinburgh, so thank you for that. Um, what do you do? So I'm the CTO of uh, Intelligent Growth, which is a vertical farm in Dundee, uh, and we supply the technology to uh, other farmers and supply chain. Well, I'm glad that we've got good weather for you down here, at least anyway. Um, Laura. Hi. Whereabouts have you come from today? Nottingham, actually. Yeah, people have travelled quite a long yeah. way to, to be on the panel. This, this, is, this is, you know, um, I feel kind of bad that this is literally the home office for me. I've <laughs> done nothing by, by comparison. But uh, yeah, you're the Director of Sales Operations at Arenco. Yep. What do Arenco do? So we're a software company in the energy sector. Um, yep. Our software controls um, and optimises grid-scale batteries to uh, basically, you know, enable people to optimise their uh, flexible energy assets. And um, we... Uh, trade assets in-house, but we also license our software to, to trading houses for them to trade themselves. Perfect. And lastly, certainly not least, Diane, you're the person that's going to make sure that I stick to time and don't waffle because you've got to get off to performance of Oklahoma 
at the end of this. Uh, <laughs> um, but your di so uh, your your job, your talent director at Zinc. If anyone's not familiar with Zinc, uh, yes, and I've travelled from King's Cross. Um, so Zinc is a venture capital firm that builds and invests in companies from the ground up that are mission focused. So building commercial products and services in mission areas, mental health, automation and globalization, longer life, and the environment. So that's why I'm here today about the environment, looking if we can maybe help some of your businesses um, by building B2B businesses that help transform industries. So look, the, the subject of the conversation is the future of sustainable change in technology. To start, Laura, let's, let's switch focus to you. What would you say the barriers are that stand in the way of achieving net zero in business? Um, I think um, for us, or for me, I've seen quite a big shift in terms of um, businesses committing to net zero in the last um, few years, as I'm sure you know, a few of us can um, recognise. Um, and I had a quick check this morning, actually, from a government perspective. You know, about in 2021, it was so a bit out of date, but a third of sort of big businesses have committed to zero um, net zero targets. But I guess. For me, thinking about sort of the smaller businesses that uh, you know we um, are in, um, I think for me, the sort of one of the top things is is resources and skills internally. So, um, from Arenco's perspective, we're you know our, our purpose and mission is all about um, facilitating a, a net carbon, a, a, sorry, a net zero um, electricity grid, um, and you know our products are all about that, um, but actually, you know, thinking about, I guess, our broader carbon impacts and environmental impacts internally takes that sort of resources and specific skill sets that we don't necessarily have. So um, we've been working a lot on our sustainability strategy internally. Um, and, you know, I guess some of the things we've come across there are um, some challenges actually with um, metrics and um, how we measure things like diversity and inclusion internally. There doesn't seem to be um, particularly uh, common or uh, well well-known metrics for that, you know, because these things are, are constantly evolving. So I think it's about how we um, sort of pin some of those things down so that we've got something achievable to um, to focus on as, as smaller businesses. Um, the other thing I think for me is a big challenge is about greenwashing or the, the risk of, of greenwashing. And um, so I think how you communicate um, a sustainability strategy is really um, can be quite tricky. Um, again, you know, our, our business is, is all about facilitating a zero carbon grid, but um, th there's quite a lot of pitfalls, I think, that are quite could be quite easy to, to fall into. Um, if you don't get the right advice on how, how to communicate that and how to sort of um, frame that. Diane, as, as a director of talent, listening there around talk of, of metrics and, and being able to measure um, when it comes to a, a barrier to net zero, I mean, th there must be some stuff there that, that tallies with your experience. What, how do you define those metrics? So have you, what, what success have you had in that regard? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I think the, the key thing is looking at the goals that you set at the very beginning of the year and what you're going to pick out by some of those metrics, right? Because you won't be covering all of them. So when we look at bringing in talent into Zinc and then the businesses that we're gonna build right from the very onset, we're looking at what are their supply chains? Who are they hiring? How are they working with this? And can we 
actually from a really early stage in the business build that into the business rather than have to add it on. It doesn't always happen, but that's really what we're looking at in terms of the awareness, setting those goals, and then building that from the ground up to make sure that there's some of that measurement. I suppose this might be an interesting area to talk a little bit about your backstory, Dave, because you did a degree and then you did an HND for the very reason that you didn't think that you had the skill set to work in this particular sector, because you thought your degree was, I mean, my degree is fairly useless to be fair, but you had that suspicion, right? I, I did. So the skills gap is something that actually, well, I could talk about for a long time, but there's a few things that really, really stand out to me. So even at school, you were kind of encouraged that you should aim to be a, like a white collar worker and not a, not a blue collar worker. There was a kind of distinction they were made very early on. And then when you get to work, uh, you hear a lot about engaging with universities and doing master's projects and these kind of things. But you very rarely hear the word college or city and guilds and these kind of things. And they made a big difference to, to my path. So we certainly hear it in our, our board meetings and uh, that's something I would encourage others to do is like in the UK, we have really strong technical colleges. And after university, if you choose to go that route, actually going back and doing an HNC or HND or a city and guilds actually really complements an academic degree. Uh, and that's, yeah, that made things very, very different for, for myself. Um, and then after that, you go to get a job. And what I found was quite interesting is we're doing a lot of hiring. And again, a lot of focus is on your CV. Your CV should look like this, it should have this and that. But actually, I spend 30 seconds looking at the CV. Um, what I would like to see is a cover letter. And in that cover letter, kind of your background. So do you want a nine to five job and you'll turn up and be reliable and repeatable, um, but your, your life is focused on your family. And just tell us that, that's ideal. Um, are you young and just, you want to be used and abused, flow around the world, just working every hour of the day, because that's where you are, then again, going to put it in. Um, or like myself, have you been living like a poor, a poor footballer for 10 years and enough, <laughs> you, you want something a bit more stable, then again, can I, can I say that? Um, and if it's got spelling mistakes or grammar mistakes, or even if it's handwritten, that's like when we inhale people at the speed that we are, we're actually more interested in does your face fit with the other people you're going to be working with? And a CV doesn't give you any of that. So it's right from the very beginning, from at school to further education to when you apply for jobs, I think there's a lot we can do to, to make it better. Not sure how your comments will necessarily go down in a room with recruiters. Uh, I mean, I never really looked at cover letters when I was recruiting, so that's interesting enough. But uh, look, what skills in particular do you think actually are, are relevant to the industry right now? You kind of talked about practice, practical skills, HNDs. Are there, are there any in particular where you are hiring right now that you go, actually, this is a skill set that, sure, we might be hiring on potential, but this is really going to help someone? Definitely, and actually, it ties what a lot of us saying is that, actually, it's, it's when you design something, I think what we're missing is, most things now are going electric, so you have the plug that the power comes from. And your focus is to have high efficiency on whatever you design. Everyone says, I want my process is 95% efficient. That's kind of, it's old hat now. But actually, if we can train people to one step before, actually, how do you use the power? Can you make your process flex? For example, if my factory has got a big load between 6 and 10, and somebody else's has between 6 and 10. If we knew about that, we could shift 
by two hours each way, and then actually the grid's got a much easier problem to deal with. And at the minute, everything, all the design starts from efficiency from the mains, but actually designing systems that can flex and change and be very dynamic is a skill that we are having to show people and to think about. It's not kind of coming out of the unions, the colleges, uh, which is a, is a bit of a shame. We're missing a bit of a trick. Um, Dan, to bring you into the conversation, um, we're talking a bit about the grid there, and it sounds like we're beginning to touch onto infrastructure. Um, out of interest, uh, this is probably a, a, a bad example, but um, I, I've moved on to a new build estate. Most of the houses have electric charging points built onto the side of the houses. Not all, incidentally, not ours, much to my wife's dismay. Um, but we've got neighbours who will use a Nissan Leaf to run to the shops, but they won't take it for for large journeys, because if they go out to Cornwall, they don't have any kind of, um, they don't have confidence that they're gonna be able to charge it reliably on, on the way. If we're going to make some of the technologies um, a reality and actually have sustained change, surely there needs to be better infrastructure in place for people to buy into renewables and to clean energy. Where does that responsibility lie? Dave's talking about people coming out, being able to, to build those, um, those particular kind of um, products and services that we need, but where does responsibility lie to make that a reality in terms of funding and in terms of the impetus? Um, I think a lot of it lies with the consumer. There needs to be a, a big shift in attitude and, um, uh, and, and, and support for everything clean and sustainable. Uh, that said, the consumer doesn't have any money at the moment, particularly today when everything else is, uh, is rising near vertically. Um, there's only so much one can subsidise as a, as a government or as a country. We've got subsidies for EVs, we've got subsidies for demand response, and we had stacks of subsidies for solar and wind, and a lot of companies have done very well from that. Um, when you talk about using, when you talk about EV infrastructure, I think, I, I think it's probably reasonably robust. I, I, just, I think there's probably a bit of a myth that everyone's petrified about getting in a car and doing a long journey. If you get in a Nissan Leaf, then yeah, you're not going to get to Cornwall, but if you get in a you know, a brand spanking new Range Rover, you're probably still going to have to fill up on the way. That's not really any different for electric to, you know, a, a combustible car. Um, but the, 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 there, are, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of myths around electric car ownership, around electric car charging, around EV infrastructure, about destination charging. I think we're probably, you know, kind of past halfway there for having a robust infrastructure in the UK because, you know, but a lot of the journeys aren't to Cornwall, in fact. People don't go to work in Cornwall from London or Southampton. They go to work within, within 10 miles. Um, and the kind of myth that surrounds the, the, the dead battery scenario is, is, is kind of dead and buried. I think the AA said that they responded to about 2.5-3% of their calls being flat batteries. So I think there's, there's just a, a huge amount of education that needs to be done around uh, the transition to um, uh, electrified transport. Um, how does that link to you know the greater good in renewables? Well, um, you know it, it's happening already. The subsidy regimes are finished. Um, there are lots of vast unsubsidised renewable power plants being built in the UK. We're doing some. A lot of our peer groups are doing them. A lot of the big you know the big power plays are doing them. Um, it, it's it's kind of happening happening naturally, and it's it's just going to be a, you know, a fairly. I would hopefully it will be fairly a natural progress into. Consumers changing attitudes. Consumers coming to the end of their their um, their car, moving to an electric car. When their gas boiler comes to an end, looking at alternatives for sort of heat pumps, um, 
and and just encouraging that that change in change in mindset really, and, and bringing comfort to them as well. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. I think the mindset change and like thinking about how you do things differently as a consumer is really essential. But I also think that um, it's having confidence in the support and like. Um, so, so, so support when things go wrong. So I think that's what is less ingrained in, in people's mindsets. So, you know, if, if I install a heat pump in my house, actually, am I sure that um, that I'm going to have the, you know, servicing capability, you know, if I, if I ring the local heating engineer, that they're going to know actually how to fix that. And I think that's that can be the same with, or the same sort of concerns maybe with, um, with stuff like EVs. But um, I really agree that um, it's about that consumer mindset change. But I think that needs some a bit of impetus as well to sort of um, ignite that a bit more. You get a keeping up with the Joneses effect in the UK as well. Yeah. Um, we saw it solar. Is that you know we put solar panels on our roof and all of a sudden our neighbours are knocking on us. It was the same with Sky Sacrifice years ago. You get a massive, great, big white dish in your garden, and all of a sudden within six months the whole neighbourhood has got them. That's happened with the electric cars. That's happened with you know home solar. I dare say it happened with heat pumps. I think heat pumps were probably you know a big. Big, big chunk away from where we are with electric cars. Yeah. That said, I agree with the point on supply chain. You know, there are a handful of brands that manage heat pumps at the moment. Although when our boiler broke down, we couldn't get a plumber for love and money anyway. So it's, it's kind of it's that problem. I think probably exists to a degree as well. Um, that said, the same the same plumber that did come around did say, you know, we are exploring financing packages for for domestic heat pumps if you're interested. Mm -hmm. I won't give you my answer yet because it's probably <laughs> controversial, but. Um, you know, the, there's there's a shift in mindset, and I think we've got to kind of cut out the, some of the tabloid anti-renewable um, press that we see. Well, we could probably cut out the tabloid press largely. But... I'm trying to avoid naming <laughs> names here, but yeah. Can I jump um, into that just yeah, for absolutely. a minute? So um, I think we have a, a scientific team that's the largest part of the team, and most of them are behavioral scientists because it's really looking at what are the incentives because we have so many solutions and ideas and things that we could be doing, but we don't necessarily have the right incentives to do it, and you can do that in various ways of taxing and, and different tariffs and things, but this is actually looking at people who want to change, want to do things differently, and then how do they influence others? And we pulled in this year a couple of um, research fellows from the humanities, so they're not engineers, but they're looking at how is the language that we're using in the storytelling to incentivize people and get them on board in terms of the change, not just as consumers, but also companies. So it's really interesting what you're saying because maybe you can get them to get the heat pump, but then how do they recommend it or use it or this fear of what happens when it breaks? Nobody's, nobody likes change, right? No. Nobody, fact. But you know, kind of have to have it forced upon you to a degree at some point. Or, or, or the environment means that you care more about it, like, you know, yeah. some living energy bills going up, I think it's making, you know, some people maybe think more about how they're using their energy at home and that kind of thing. I agree. There is a, sil there is a silver line into all the negative news around cost of living at the moment, and that's making people be more energy efficient, grow their own fruit and veg, you know, look at their own solar to keep themselves off grid. So whilst the consumer purse is um, tightening at the minute, a lot of these ideas do cost money to get off the ground, and especially kind of if they're innovation-first organisations. Diana, if I stick with you, because Zinc funds founders, they, you know, you fund ideas. How do you actually make sure that, that money gets used to further ideas that benefit the environment? How do you direct that money so it actually makes an impact? 
Sure. So we invest up to 250,000 pounds in um, individuals. We call them founders, but some of them have not built businesses before that want to build businesses from the ground up. And the investment go is broken down into an individual stipend to offset the cost of coming. We run venture builders, so the idea is bringing people in for six months, having them meet a co-founder and land on a problem, working with the science team and the research team about what they want to build. So we bring in 70 people for each venture builder. We give them a stipend of 12,000 pounds to help them offset the offset the cost of moving to London, giving up their job, and this being the main thing that they do. And then once we invest, so out of the 70 people, there's about 25 viable ideas that we think really could be tech-enabled, could scale, could genuinely help. And then we invest the remainder of the money at that point into them. Um, so that goes into product development, user testing. The whole idea is like an accelerator to accelerate their route to market and their ability to do that. I think that's the one piece of the direct investment. The bigger piece, I think, is building up this awareness and this ecosystem that there's a group of people who may not have met each other before, but who have um, the desire to make a huge change and building up the ecosystem to support them. So can we get investors to invest? We still get the question. We started in 2017. We've invested in 220 founders and have built 60 companies well, when does the mission fit in? And actually, the mission is part of it. Like, if we are doing and building the right businesses, then they will actually have the impact. So to your question about where does the money go, it goes into the founders and, and the development of product, but it also goes into raising the understanding of investors that a business built solely on, you know, how can we actually improve lifestyle, how can we make farming more sustainable, how can we actually help the businesses do these things, is actually building an ecosystem of people who understand what the investment strategy is. And that may not be a 10x return or a 6x return, but it's going to be a 4x return, and that's actually really good for the business and good for the scale. Might just be an interesting point, because you obviously work in the UK and Asia, you mentioned at the beginning, where we're talking about ecosystems and people working together. Do you see any differences between those ecosystems? Is the, is the UK... Is there something that we could learn from those other parts of the world where, where maybe collaboration happens better in this sphere? Um, I mean, some of, <laughs> some of the projects we have in Southeast Asia is, uh, you know, are, are interesting, to say the least, or probably not a direct comparison, but um, I don't know if it's controversial to suggest we should retain a bit of nuclear here. Uh, we're not, we don't invest, we're not interested in coal, you know, diesel, gas or nukes, but from a security supply perspective, given what we've announced yesterday, the Energy Secretary announced keeping uh, coal and light in the UK. Some other countries have taken a, what was a controversial view of keeping nukes going and taking over uh, to maintain security supply for, for their countries, um, whereas we've tried to err away from it. Um, and we're now left in a fairly unpredictable situation with Ukraine and the, the situation there, but we are left in a situation where come October, um, the winter forecasts will potentially say that we could have curtailment of gas generation in the UK, which will impact your factory. You know, it won't impact consumers, but it would impact industry quite substantially. Is that going to happen? I doubt it. You know, but it's potentially the highest risk group we've ever had. And I think from being quite so aggressive in our mothballing of traditional power, where other countries haven't been, then it might be something we, in hindsight, may have considered differently. It costs a lot of money to keep big power plant going. You have to keep it ticking over. You have to keep it maintained. But you know, do you want to 
curtail livelihoods and lifestyles and power and warmth um, for the sake of the environment? You know, I'm not going to answer that question because it's it's a difficult answer, whichever way you look at it, right? Um, but um, yeah, I think we could have reconsidered our security position slightly differently. I suppose. I suppose the question there is, and Dave, I, I will come to you on this as, as well. Is how much influence though do individual companies or the community around this have over, say, an individual country's? government policy-making unit, because there you're kind of, disc what, what, what it sounds like is the agenda is very much set by the, by, the, um, by the decisions that are made at a governmental level, as opposed to that ecosystem of players kind of cooperating, I suppose, and setting their own agenda. Sort of. I mean, these are, you know, energy ministerial level decisions that are done through consultation with the regulator, which in turn are done through consultation with trade groups like Energy UK and Renewable UK in this country, and that's all well and good, but... Um, you know, everyone gets their chance to, to feed in, well, everyone gets their chance to feed into a government because we all vote um, rightly or wrongly, but, you know, the, the, the decisions that are taken at that level will have some level of consultation, but, you know, when you, do you put your, do you put your, um, you know, your consumers first, your taxpayers first, do you put profit first, do you put environment first, the kind of influencing of um, investment companies is a you know is a whirlwind of affairs that I've been involved with for years in trying to explain to big banks that investing in traditional oil and gas is you know is, is kind of dead in the water and they say yeah you're right it is but we're going to continue to do it because it's paying big dividends and when you've got unnamed when you've got some of the largest banks in the world who are very publicly continuing to support drilling um, uh, and oil and gas then kind of pushing water uphill in some of those arguments. Yeah, I would agree. So we're <laughs> early stage, so we're not doing, um, but I, I think it's a huge challenge because you're, in, and there is a growing group of investors who were looking at this. Um, you know, some of the big pension funds and insurance companies are looking at diversifying and how do they get involved in early stage looking mostly at what are the alternatives that are viable that they could be investing in, if not now in the future. I would say that's still a fairly small segment. I think it's promising because with some of the profits, they're putting in some of that money into places to invest, but you still get the standard questions about how quickly will I get my return and what is my return? So it's also educating to say you will get a return, but it's not going to be in seven years. It's going to be in 10 years or it may be in 15 years, but actually the long-term impact of that is going to benefit everybody. Um, and I think it's the right kind of investment conversations as you get more people, the, the community actually coming together. We're working with um, a group of advisors and companies. So we work with someone who was the former chief technology officer at Ocado to look at who's retired. So I think that's the interesting pe thing. Can people, when they're in the space, make the difference? Or is it when they exit the space that, that they then can talk about what ha needs to happen to industry? And then can they impact investors while they're in versus doing it when they come out? And yeah, it's profit, versus, <laughs> profit versus environment, right? Yeah. But the, that does kind of go back to the first question around consumers. When you, sit, when you start to see your delivery, I mean, probably a demographic uh, query here as well. If you have a delivery driver from Ocado, then you can afford to have you know, home shopping. But when you see that truck arrive as an electric one, you know, you just 
the things start to embed. Royal Mail announced last week, the week before last, I think they're going to go, they brought their net zero targets down by about 10 years and bought another 5,500 electric car, electric vans to, to cover cities. So people start to see just more and more common occurrences rather than just being the milk float at four o'clock in the morning. You know, this, mm. the, the, post off, the postman's coming in a, you know, electric van, you see a police car that's electric. Uh, you start to see a lot of this ingrained. Um, and it takes a lot of these big brands to influence consumers. So. Whilst big brands can influence consumers, picking up on what Diane's saying there, I mean, Dave, with, with IGS, you're a company that wants to make a contribution. You want to impact and make a change. But as a, a leader in a growth organisation, for you to make a genuine contribution, how, how, how can you influence that? How can you influence an NGO or a government? There's, we're now getting a lot of exposure for what we are doing. Um, some of it is because of what we are doing, but it's a space that people are genuinely interested in. And actually, consumers are demanding. So they used to get what they were given, but they are now saying, I want this, I want it grown this way, it must be sustainable, the people behind the scenes must be treated well. We are getting very aggressive to the big retailers of saying what we want. And when with that exposure, we've been engaging with our own governments, other governments, um, big organisations. Um, and also you have an influence then on what they are seeing. That's, that's really where you, you come into your own. Um, and if you can show them what's going on and then make suggestions that, that, that benefit the many, then obviously you've got more chance of of actually making something happen. So an example of something we're trying to do is making a, an electrical equivalent of, of red diesel. So um, if we had kind of red electricity for certain industries, what we don't want is cheaper energy, we just use more of it. So can we, can we have a system where if you prove that you're in an industry that makes a difference and you're using it uh, morally correct and everything else, that actually you can benefit from these kind of reductions. So that's using the, the system we have today, but just making it, incentivizing people to do the right thing. Um, that's the way you get businesses to adopt, adopt as fast as possible. Um, interestingly, on your, your topic there of, of kind of investing in people, there is, obviously money has a cost, um, and depending, that cost could be disruptive to your business, but you can get good money. And what I'm seeing for yourself is actually the people you bring in is a network of, of individuals that can make each um, each person's business much more successful. And again, that network of people can influence, if you kind of get together, that network of, of people in trade and industry and people who are, are meeting like the big organisations and the governments, actually you're incredibly strong together because you can take research straight to their door, which would take a long, long time. And do you genuinely feel that there's appetite to listen to that group of people? I mean, sometimes you kind of look at the press and you kind of think, oh, a bigger policy announcement's made and then it's rolled back six months later. So you kind of query. Yeah, and, and I, I think it is, again, consumers very, very quickly have changed what they, what they are demanding. I think demand is the right word. Uh, we want X, Y, Z and we want it now. And the governments are forced to, to act on it. So I think it's quite strong what's, what's happening at the moment. With regards to purpose, which was mentioned a few minutes ago, Laura, it might be interesting to, to talk to you on this point because you have to align the ambitions of a sales team. We mentioned about the pressure with regards to dividends, so the pressure to generate profits. Um, 
I suppose, making sure that they align with the, with the purpose and the mission of the organization and to deliver on sustainability goals. How do, you, how do you effectively do that, juggle all of those different constituent parts of your business to make sure that they are pulling in the same direction? Yeah, and I think, uh, and that's, that is sort of uh, the, the core purpose of my role in, in Arenco, actually. And I think, um, I think we're quite lucky because our, our purpose um, is about... Um, unlocking the value of these flexible energy assets and you know aiming for a, a net zero um, net zero carbon electricity grid so th the way that we achieve that is if we sort of align is about aligning the organization with that um, that purpose and and keeping you know regular and effective communications um, to keep people aligned but if we um, if, if our sales teams achieve their targets you know so selling to um, getting new clients onto our software using our software that for me means that we're um, we're increasing we're improving the business case I guess for investment in the electricity grid um, which in turn um, increases the amount of um, renewables on, on the grid and actually then you know achieves our purpose so actually our, our sales team's targets are um, directly contributing to our, our mission then by you know increasing the clients that we have using the software and enabling sort of uh, the optimization of those assets and and how effective they are on the grid I don't think I articulated that particularly well but <laughs> no, no, absolutely <laughs> but um, yeah I think it's um, it, it's having that strong purpose in a business um, and making sure that it's, it's not just the sales team actually it's, it's having the whole business aligned to that and, and keeping um, keeping people's minds on the job at hand, you know, their, their day jobs, but actually it's kind of that, that underlying mission is really, is really critical to, to keep the motivation, actually, and, uh, and make sure that we're achieving our goals. But, you know, just having the goals written down is, is not enough. It's about sort of making sure that we're, um, you know, we've got that sort of, I guess, boring stuff in some people's eyes, but, you know, go governance and process and, um, and, and that uh, structure... To, to keep people aligned and, and focused on actually the, the targets at hand. We've talked a little bit around then process, structure, culture, a little bit around purpose. Uh, Diane, just to come back to you, I think it'd be interesting to know everyone's always interested in the VC community in, in funding. You know, most people go, I think, go to conferences when they're in the early stages of their organization because they're looking for funding. What are, the, what are the ingredients that makes an organization like yours go, here's a business to get behind and invest in? We're such early stage, so it really does focus on the people. So it, it, it focuses on, on um, the number one thing we index on is do you have passion for the mission? You know, this is going to be really hard. You're going to be building a business from scratch. You add the layer on that you're building a mission-driven business. And then it's commercial, so it sometimes falls into social impact, but these are actually commercial products and services, so you need to be looking at, do you have this ability to scale? Because we are still a fund, so our funding model is that a couple of the companies are going to hit it big, and that's going to support the entire fund. Um, so that craziness that you're going to be that person that's going to actually be able to do this is really needed. And I think it's very specific to us at Zinc, but 
that translates into just the supreme curiosity to solve a problem that you want to be solving. And um, you were talking about the, the recruitment. You know, when we talk to people who have said, I quit my job, I'm so frustrated, we could be doing better, I don't know what I'm doing next. On a regular interview, people think that's a gap. And we're like, that's fantastic. You actually had enough guts to leave something that you don't want to do. And you're going through a transition. So when we look at you know that curiosity, that that person that is just if you're that person boring people to death at parties because you can't stop talking about what we need to do in the construction industry and you know the 30% of waste that's happening, then that's the people that we want to talk to because they don't see challenges as roadblocks. They see them as, okay, that's the next problem I have to solve to, to get to my new vision, next vision of how I'm going to do this. Um, and so that translates into curiosity. And if I think of our founders, 50% are women, 15% are black, 40% are parents, the average age is 38. Like We look really different. And, and that's kind of your point of like who's going to solve these problems by bringing a diverse <coughs> way of thinking. That just means it's going to be even harder <laughs> to get this. So I think that commitment, which translates into the curiosity that I'm going to approach every obstacle, is just a different way to figure out how to solve this problem. Look, as a way of closing, then, um, if we think about this question again, the future of sustainable change in technology. Uh, the Sphinx on site uh, clientele are all early stage in growth mode, um, probably first, well, possibly first time founders. Um, our own audience, if we think about it, is a lot of a lot of people who are looking to make a difference in the technology um, sector. If you, as a group, had some advice for those people who are at the first steps of trying to make an impact in, in, in regards to sustainability, what would that one piece of advice to that, to that potential new founder who's starting out be? Get in touch with Zinc. <laughs> uh, keep at it, right? Yeah. Uh, no one to keep going, but no one to, no one to call it a day. Um, but yeah, you, you need to... You need to get yourself in front of the right person and get some get some money, which is easier said than done. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't you know think. Knowing when to call it a day is an interesting one. Um, the yeah, I, I think obviously your business needs to be successful. And I one of the things that we done was we knew when to ask for help. Um, being the CEO is a very especially as a business skills is a very hard thing to do. And if that's your aspirations, then, then great. But certainly, I didn't have those skills. So we went and found a management team that did. And that was a very difficult decision to make, but it was absolutely the right thing to do. Really, see by me. I Yeah, exactly. And, and again, um, David Farber, the CEO, he said something. We had a kind of interview together, and he said something which I'll always remember. And it was, you can't be half pregnant. And he said, if you want me to take this on, I'll take this on. But you can't you can't let go in until actually know yeah. um, and actually that really stood with, with me and, and I think that's good advice uh, you need to find the right person and that might take time um, but yeah ask for help and then choose good people to do it Laura um, I, similar vein I guess but for me it's about uh, knowing your strengths or knowing what you're good at and, and sticking to that so being really focused about it um, I think that's sort of a journey that we're We've gone on as a Renko, you know, starting as a battery developer and then actually realizing that the, the value we could add was in the software and pivoting the business and actually now being really focused on that because that's where we think, you know, we can add the most value 
uh, as part of our, our mission and purpose. So keep focused. Dan, Dan made this very easy for you, but anything other than getting such a zinc. Thanks, Dan. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, no, I, I think that's right. I think you have to surround yourself with people that believe in you, and that is actually easier sometimes than it seems. You know, there, and I think especially if you can find people who really believe in that mission or that vision, they do want to help, and, and people have been incredibly generous when they really care about something. And I was reading Billie Jean King's autobiography when somebody was asking her about what do you do to change, like how gender is viewed in an organization if they just don't want to change. And she said, you leave. You go find an organization that cares about making change. They may not be in the space where they're doing it, but they actually care about it. And I think when you're starting out, there's plenty of pockets of people. You just have to dig for them, and you really need to find them. Well, look, thank you. Thank you to those of you who stayed out the pub on the way here. Uh, good news is there are plenty of drinks to go around, um, and hopefully our panel will stay for as long as they can. I know, Diane, you obviously have to shoot off, but thank you very much for your time and being guests on the show. Thank you.